Hey everyone, welcome to Uplift. My name is Kyle. I'm so glad that you're here. By the way, Uplift, and this message is going to be streamed for our Sunday morning Bible class called The Conversation. So if you're watching us on Sunday mornings, I'm so glad that you are here. Go ahead and log into the chat and say hi. We are in a series here in Uplift called Meet Jesus, where we are allowing ourselves to be reintroduced to Jesus. And tonight, we're going to talk about life, about life, about the nature of life. And we're even going to try to define life. And we might even get a little philosophical along the way. It turns out defining life is not easy. It's pretty tough. In fact, if I were to ask all of you what life is, you would probably have a multitude of answers, right? It's not easy to define life. And before you prove me wrong, I want to show you what I mean with a quote from Daniel Koshland. Daniel Koshland is the president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. This association also publishes a pretty prestigious scientific journal. He wrote about an experience his own experience with a committee that was charged with generating a definition of life. Here's a quote from his book, The Seven Pillars of Life. I'm sorry, from a, from a journal entry, The Seven Pillars of Life in the Journal Science. Here's his quote. This is what he recalled from that experience. What is the definition of life, he wrote. I remember a conference of the scientific elite that sought to answer that very question. Is an enzyme alive? Is a virus alive? Is a cell alive? After many hours of launching promising balloons that defined life in a sentence, followed by equally conclusive punctures of these balloons, a solution seemed at hand. The ability to reproduce, that is the essential characteristic of life, said one statesman of science. And everyone nodded in agreement that the essential characteristic of life was the ability to reproduce until one small voice was heard. The voice said, then, then one rabbit is dead. Two rabbits, a male and a female, are alive, but either one alone is dead. At that point, Koshland concludes, we all became convinced that although everyone knows what life is, there is no simple definition of life. It's hard to define life. It's tough because you can't really adequately study something until you know what that something is. You can't study a thing until you can say what that thing is. Included in this journey to define life, NASA has introduced its own definition, and it needed a definition if it's going to be able to quantify the results of its explorations from its various interplanetary explorers and spacecraft. They need to know what they're looking for, and they need to say what it is. Here's their definition. This is NASA's definition of life. Life is a self-sustaining chemical system capable of Darwinian evolution. Now that word salad, 
actually sounds a little bit like the aforementioned definition that was produced by that committee of the scientific elite. The same committee, by the way, that found a major flaw with such a sentence. So we've enlisted the help of philosophers to define life. Philosophers help us think about abstract ideals. And philosophers generally say that our working definitions of life, ever how many there are, and again, there would be a multitude of definitions from this room alone, philosophers generally think that those definitions, they're enough for us. They're enough for us to ponder and evaluate. In other words, NASA's definition of life may be different from a doctor's definition of life, which may be different from a physicist's definition of life. But if we even adopt NASA's definition of life, you know this, we're going to have some serious, serious disagreements. And here's why. Let's, let's talk about some of the things we've already discussed. Let's talk about viruses. We live in an era of viruses. Viruses are self-sustaining chemical reactions. Viruses replicate. Viruses evolve. The strongest variants emerge. But is a virus... Is a virus alive? You can use the same logic with, logic with computer viruses. They evolve, they replicate, they're self-containing systems, but is a computer virus alive? I want to introduce to you a prominent 20th century philosopher. His name is Ludwig Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein is considered to be one of the most prominent, maybe even the greatest philosopher of the 20th century. Wittgenstein believed that we actually often talk about concepts that are really hard to define, but we talk about them all the time. And Wittgenstein included in this debate, in this conversation, the topic of games. Like games. How do you define a game? Because not all games have winners and losers. Some games use balls, others use sticks. Some games use boards, some games use dice. But even so, across all of those variations, Wittgenstein observed that no one really has any trouble defining a game. This is what he said about this very topic. This is a quote. If you look at every game you can imagine, you will not see something that is common to all, but you'll see similarities relationships, and a whole series of them at that. Using his logic to talk about the definition of life, we're, we're kind of getting closer, right? Starting to feel our way through this. Let me introduce to you another philosopher. Her name is Carol Cleland. Carol Cleland is a successful author. She's written two successful books on the nature and the definition of life. She was also once part of NASA's Astrobiology Institute, and she helped guide NASA's definition of life. And she was at a conference in 2001 over this very idea. What is life? How to define it? How do we talk about it? All of these incredibly intellectual people were gathered to talk about this very topic. And Carol Cleland shocked the conference when she stated that it was really pointless to try to define life. Not everyone at the conference was quite happy with what she said, but here's what she wrote about it later. Definitions 
are not the proper tools for answering the question of what is life. We don't, we don't want to know what the word life means to us. We want to know what life is. We want to know what life is. So really what philosopher Carol Cleland is saying is this. If you know, you know. I think there's more to that, though. I think we really want to know that we know. I think we really want to know that. In other words, I think when we talk about something like life and what it means, we're asking for something concrete. We want to know what a changed life is possible with Jesus. We want to know these things. We're not really looking for something scientific or philosophical. We really want something real. And that's what we're going to talk about. Jesus talked about life, by the way. You know this. Actually, though, when Jesus talked about life, he used three different words to talk about life that have all been translated into our English translations as our word, life. I think we need to see what Jesus said when we talk about what life really is. Here are the three words that Jesus used to talk about life. Bios, suke, and Zoe. And all three of these words actually mean something different. They all mean something different. Let me show you some examples. Let's talk about the word bios. You can find the word bios in Luke chapter 8, verse 14. Let me read it to you. And that which fell into the thorns, by the way, this is the parable of the sower. And that which fell into the thorns, these are those who heard and going away are utterly choked by anxieties and riches and pleasures of this life, there's the word, and do not bring any fruit to maturity. Now, that word life in the Greek language, in the language that Jesus spoke, is the Greek word bios. Now, you recognize this word. It's, a, it's the root of other words like biology. You know what this means. Bios means the course of life, the physical life, the expansiveness of life. That's the first word. Here's the second word, suke. Here's an example. It's found in Matthew chapter 16, verse 25. This is Jesus' words, by the way. This is, what he, this is what he said. For whoever wants to save his, there's the word, life, shall lose it. But whoever loses his life, for my sake, shall find it. Now, again, same English word, different Greek word. This is the word suke. If you look in your New Testament and you find the word soul, that is generally the same word. It's the word suke because it's generally translated as soul. But its purest meaning is breath. Suke is the way to explain what makes you animated what makes your body move, wake up, go to sleep, and eat. It's, it's, it's pretty feasible to see why translators would use the word soul for suke. And the third word, zoe, here's an example of this word in one of my favorite, most favorite verses in the New Testament. It's in John chapter 10, verse 10. You've, you've heard this one before. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says that I came that they may have, and here's the word, life, and they have it and have it abundantly. The word Zoe is the word that Jesus used, which is translated as life here in this verse. 
Now, the word zoe, it's different than bios and suke. Zoe means the life of God. It's not merely a physical life lived in the limits of our physical existence, and it's not really what animates us or makes us move. It's not really our soul or our breath. What it is is the unique imprint of the Creator in us. So what Jesus says in John 10.10 is that in Him we find a life that we're meant to live, that we're created for, an experience we're meant for, that we're built for. It's a life of abundance as opposed to what the thief offers, which is the, a life with a constant threat of stealing and killing and destroying. Not only does Jesus provide the antithesis of what the thief provides, Jesus supersedes it. In Jesus, we find a life of abundance, but it's not an abundance of possessions or wealth. It's an abundance of protection. You cannot suffer infinite harm in Jesus. This is how Jesus talked about life. And the greatness of Scripture is that Paul actually expanded this definition from Jesus in John 10.10. He expanded it in our text for this message from Colossians chapter 3. This is why Scripture is so cool. It connects itself. Let's read this in Paul's expansion of this definition. This is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Here we go. If then, Paul wrote, you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. What's cool about this is that Paul used the same word that Jesus used in John 10. He used the word Zoe for life here. He's talking about the divine life, the life of God, the unique imprint of a creator in us. And right here in his expansion of this definition, Paul says one really important thing about Zoe, about this kind of life. And this is what it is. Life, this life, the life that Jesus explained in John 10, this life is permanent. Paul wrote here that our life is now hidden with Christ in God. But the, there's, there's some more force to this if we look at the original translation of this letter. Paul actually used the perfect tense of the verb is now hidden. And he did that to imply permanence. Now, we've talked about the perfect tense before. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to understand this. But the authors of the New Testament would often use the perfect tense as a unique way to write words in the, the original Greek language because the perfect tense communicates permanence. In fact, when I see verbs in the New Testament that are in the perfect tense, I get a little bit excited because these are things, these are actions that can't be undone. So in the way that Paul wrote this, 
in the perfect tense. This is kind of what he, this is kind of what he meant here. This is what he meant. Paul wrote that our life was hidden in Christ, is now hidden in Christ, and will forever be hidden in Christ. It's the perfect tense. It covers all aspects of time. What Paul is saying in his expansion of Jesus' definition is that we have an intimate, personal, and eternal union with Jesus that is forever rooted, not in our merit, but in Jesus's faithfulness. Oh man, that's good. And perhaps the most critical part of this passage is this, that this life will be fully revealed at the, ter- at the return of Jesus. In other words, our life in Jesus is not fully satisfied yet. But really, what does that mean for the here and now? What's the point of that? I mean, if life, and we, we seem to imply this, Jesus speaks into this, Paul expands it, if life is really more than a self-containing chemical system that changes, if it's more than that, then what is it? What is it really? And how do we know that this kind of life is ours? Paul does this a solid in Colossians chapter 3. What he does in the remainder of this passage is that he defines life experientially. Previously in the first four verses, he talks about life in poetic terms, about a life hidden with Jesus. But Paul knows something that you also know that we're going to need something more concrete than that. That definition, that expansion, it needs a framework. And Paul provides this framework. So let's read this framework from the remaining part of this passage from Colossians chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 5. This is what Paul wrote. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, I love that that geographical location, that theological location. Here, right here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all, and he is in all. Now, before we dissect this passage, I think it's important to note Paul's theme here. What Paul's doing is he's providing some good, sound instruction, but he's not being legalistic. This is not a list of things you're not supposed to do. It's not a list you hand to your kids and tell them to avoid these things. That's not the kind of instruction Paul is giving here. He is providing instruction, a framework, as an answer to our question, what is, what is life? And for us specifically, the question is, how do we know that our life is hidden with Christ? How do we know that we have that kind of life? 
What is the certainty and the assurance of that? Well, Paul answers this question. We know we have this life by how we actually live. What Paul does, it's rather genius, is that he explains this in concentric circles of our relationships and our interactions with the world. He starts with the closest, the first circle in these concentric circles. How do we know we have this life? Well, this is how we know. First, we put to death relational exploitation. We put to death relational exploitation. Let's read this again, starting in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. This is the first of the three concentric circles in our lives. It's the circle that's closest to us, and in that circle closest to us, Paul addresses how we relate to those with whom we share intimacy. So I don't want you to be surprised that Paul immediately focused on sexual sins because there's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. And here's here's how I know. Here's how I know it's more than just sexual sins. I know because of the word that Paul used. He used the word translated in our English language as sexual immorality. That word in the original Greek language, though, is a word you probably heard. It's the word pornea. That word by itself is large enough to cover any of the following words if Paul's only idea here was to talk about sexual sins. Now, because of this word, we've got to do a small digression here, so I need you to bear with me just for a second. But I think it's important for you to be armed with knowledge of what this word means. It's obvious, by the way, that we live in an era of self-expression and the immediate fulfillment of any, any desire. And because we live in this era, it makes it really easy to ignore the word pornea, especially when people make arguments that any sort of physical intimacy outside of homosexual, or I'm sorry, outside of heterosexual marriages is morally acceptable. But this word, pornea, it pushes against that. Pornea actually means any sexual activity outside of heterosexual intimacy. Any physical intimacy, anything that our culture says is right, any immediate fulfillment of desire and self-expression, any physical intimacy other than monogamous heterosexual intimacy should be put to death. And it can be. We'll get to that in just a minute. Now, that's our small digression. I wanted you to have some information about that word. Let's, let's kind of move back here to the middle. This text, again, it's not chiefly about sexual sin. That's why Paul didn't stop with the word pornea. He kept elaborating, and he used other words, impurity and passion and desires and covetousness and idolatry. Paul's immediate focus is the very place where we exploit and use others for our own personal satisfaction. 
That's what he's getting at here. And to do this and to make this really clear, he's using medical language that actually means amputation to talk about cutting off or putting to death these sinful actions. Fully removing these things which should already be starved for nutrients. This is what a life hidden with Jesus actually means. It means you can, you can put these things to death. You can stop exploiting people. You have the power, the miraculous transforming power to stop doing these things. In other words, if you know what life is, you know because you can stop it because you've done it already. That's the first way. The second way we know what this life is, this life hidden in Jesus. The second way we know this is that we put to death relational abuse. So the first is to put to death relational exploitation. Now we put to death relational abuse. And this is the second of the concentric circles here. It's the second of these in our lives. I want you to look at this. This is from verses 8 through 10, all in Colossians 3. But you must now put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator. In this short passage, Paul listed five more vices which focus on relational compatibility among believers. Again, the next of our concentric circles. It's those with whom we may not be physically intimate, but those with whom we have close relations. He keeps it real simple. Don't lie to each other. Keep your anger in check. Don't operate in violence. Don't gossip. A life hidden in Jesus treats others with dignity and respect, and we put to death the things that abuse our relationships with other people. And Paul says something really profound here. He says we should actually set these vices aside like old, worn-out clothing. He's using, again, some very specific grammar in this statement. Putting off these vices and becoming like Jesus, what Paul says a change in wardrobe, is a unique and unrepeatable action. That's what the grammar of this statement actually means. We only do it once. We don't have to keep doing it again and again. This is a miracle, by the way. This is an absolute miracle because it's in our nature to gossip and to lie and to slander. And how do I know that again? Because that's what Adam and Eve did in the idyllic setting of the garden. They chose themselves over God. At our base, that's what we choose. That's why it's a miracle that we can stop relational abuse. With our lives hidden in Jesus, we have the divine power to not participate in those horrible, horrible things. In Jesus, in Jesus, we become the people that God intends for us to be. And finally, we know that we have this life in Christ 
because we see no ethnic distinctions. We don't see them. We don't see ethnic distinctions at all. Let's look at the final verse of our text. It's Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. Here, in this life hidden with Jesus here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all, and he's in all. How else can we define this life hidden with Christ? Well, we know, we know how to define it. We know we have it by how we relate to the world at large. This is the final of the concentric circles and the one farthest from us. So remember, the first one is those with whom we share physical intimacy. The second concentric circle are those with whom we don't share physical intimacy, but those with whom we have relationships. But now, Paul expands it. This is the wider world. Everybody else. We know we have a life hidden in Jesus because we do not see distinctions among people. Not only do we not see those distinctions, we don't even see the possibility of those distinctions. And this is huge, by the way. We're pitted against each other in multiple ways. We're divided based on skin color and gender and economic status, and the list goes on and on and on. But the people of God, the people with lives hidden in Jesus don't participate in those divisions. We don't participate in that nonsense. We don't speak words like that. We don't understand these sorts of concepts. We are the people, the people whose lives are hidden in Jesus. We are the people, not political parties and not cultural movements. We are the people who declare that racism is over. We are the people, not political parties or cultural movements. We are the people who affirm life. We affirm and honor and dignify the way people were created. We say by how we live, that Jesus is all, and he's all that matters. Distinctions end when Jesus' name is spoken. So listen, people of God, people whose lives are hidden in Jesus. You want to know what life is? You want to know how to define it? This is what life is. We put to death relational exploitation. We put to death relational abuse. And we see no ethnic distinctions. This is a miracle. And prayerfully and miraculously, we know what life is because we just know. What a glorious, miraculous transformation in our lives, empowered by the blood of Jesus. And amen.